try that button. There we go. All right. Good morning. My name is Pastor Joe, and I now have learned how to work a microphone, so I appreciate you bearing with me for that. I want to welcome you to Community Alliance Church this morning. Really are glad that you're here with us today. And we are in week two of a summer series that we started last week called Selfless Living in a Selfie World. Now, if you weren't here last week, or if you were, and just to get us all caught up and on the same page, let me tell you what we're talking about in this series. Research shows that there are about 100 million selfies taken every single day. Now, a real quick honest moment here. We're all going to be honest. Raise your hand if you have ever been in a selfie. I, okay. I think some people are lying. <laughs> Most of us, though, did raise our hand, right? Many of us have been in selfies. We've probably all observed selfies, maybe even been annoyed by other people taking selfies in front of us when we say, just look at what you see in front of you. But selfies are here to stay, right? Selfies are a part of the world that we live in, and we're talking about them in this series because we think that they also offer an analogy for how many of us live our everyday lives. You might say, okay, yeah, I admit it. I am one of those who make up the 100 million people who take a selfie every single day. Or you might say, you know what? You could give me $100 if I could figure out how to take a selfie with my cell phone and you'd get to keep your $100 because I have no clue how to do it. Wherever you fall in between, the point that we're making in the series is that many of us live our lives doing exactly what selfies do. And that is focusing on ourselves in much of what we do every single day. We look at the situations in our lives, we look at ourselves, and we think, think things like, what light does this cast me in? How does this look for me? How does this affect me? And so in this selfless living in a selfie world series, we're taking a, a look at the way that the selfie living perspective kind of infiltrates into many different areas of our lives and we're looking at how God might be calling us to live differently in some of those areas. This morning, we're going to be looking at how does it work when the selfie living perspective infiltrates into how we approach our faith or our relationship with God. Now, to kind of get us started down the track that we're going to go, we're going to look at a, just a saying that's been quite popular over the years. You might have heard this before. There are a couple books out there, actually, with this saying as the title, and it's credited to a number of different people. That saying is this, if it's going to be, then it's up to me. If it's going to be, then it's up to me. If I want something to happen in my life, then it's up to me to make it happen. I have to get it done. This little saying, if it's going to be, it's up to me, kind of captures a value that we have in our culture, in American culture. It's the value of personal responsibility. Personal responsibility essentially says this. You and I are responsible in large part for the outcomes in our lives. It's the belief that we are in large part responsible for the outcomes in our lives. In other words, if you think about it like this, personal responsibility would say that if you're here this morning and you feel like your career maybe isn't going the way that you want it to go, or maybe your relationships aren't what you'd want them to be, or you just don't have the satisfaction in your life that you really want to have, and you're trying to figure out what is the problem, personal responsibility says, here's how you figure it out. You take out your cell phone, you tap the camera app, you push the selfie button and you look at the screen. 
Because personal responsibility says that if it's going to be, it's up to the person that you see in that screen, and that person is you and me. Now, we're going to be looking at this idea as it applies to our faith. Because what happens is with with some cultural values, they spill over into other areas of our lives, but they don't equally apply well to all areas of our lives. So what happens when we take this idea of if it's going to be, it's up to me, and we apply it to how we approach God? And we say, if being in a right relationship with God is going to be, is it really up to me? Is it up to be, is it up to me to make myself right with God? And to do that, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. So if you brought your Bible with you, go ahead and take it out. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the pews around you. If you don't own a Bible, just feel free to take home one of the pew Bibles with you. It's our, it's our gift to you. We have extras. We'll put it in there and have it back for somebody else next week. Pull out a mobile device, whatever you need. Romans chapter 2. Now, Romans was written by a person you may have heard of before. He's kind of popular in the Bible. His name is Paul. Paul was probably the greatest missionary of all time. And he wrote a letter to a church that was in the city of Rome in the first century. And that letter is what we now call in our Bibles the book of Romans. And Paul is writing this letter to them to talk a little bit about theology. And really, Romans has become probably more so than any other book in the Bible, just the cornerstone of the theology of the Christian faith. So we're going to be looking at chapter 2. We're going to kind of dive in midstream, but just to get us up to speed so we're going at Paul's pace here, what we have to realize is that Paul is writing in Romans chapter 1 and into chapter 2, and he's talking about right and wrong. He's talking about how do you know what is right and wrong in your life? And furthermore, we are accountable for whether we do right or wrong in our lives. And so we come here into chapter 2, and we pick up, and he's saying to, to people who are reading this, and he's talking a lot about this word called the law. And he's saying that God gave the Jewish people something called the law, and it told them what was right and wrong in their lives. And picking up in chapter 2, he's kind of saying to us now, if you're sitting here today and you're reading this or you're reading your Bible and you're not a Jewish person, maybe you're thinking, am I really responsible to obey what this book says if I'm not a Jew? So he kind of reads our minds, and in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, indeed, when Gentiles, and Gentiles are simply people who are not Jewish, so if you're here today and you're not a Jew, congratulations, you're a Gentile. When Gentiles who do not have the law, or in other words, they don't have Scripture, they, they don't have the Bible or the Old Testament to which Paul is referring, he said, but they still do by nature things that are required by the law. He says they still do right and wrong in their lives. He said, you don't need, if you're a Gentile, they don't need a stone tablet with commandments written on it to know that murdering somebody is wrong. Or that sleeping with somebody else's spouse is wrong. He's saying there's people that you'll come across in your lives that don't have scripture, but they still have this sense of morality in their lives. He's saying this is the case because they have a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, the Bible law. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, 
also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. He's saying whether you have the Bible or not, people have a sense of morality in their lives because God has written the requirements of the law, the right and wrong things in the Bible, on our consciences. So maybe you're here today and you probably have somebody in your life that would say that they don't believe in God, right? If you had a conversation with them, they would say, you know what, I just don't believe in God. I'm not sure. But chances are they still think like things like murder and stealing and lying are wrong. This verse here, Paul is explaining that because God put right and wrong on our consciences, people still have this sense of morality in their life, even if they don't believe in God. So, why did God give us this, either our sense of consciousness about right and wrong, or the laws that's spelled out in the Bible about right and wrong? Paul gives us what seems to be a pretty logical answer in verse 12 and 13. He's basically going to say, God gives us right and wrong in our lives. He tells us what's right and wrong so we can make God happy and be cool with God or be in a right relationship with God. Look what he says, verse 12. He says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. He's saying, look, whether the law is written on your heart or whether it's written in the Bible and you're trying to follow that, when you don't do what's right in your life and you do wrong, instead you're going to be judged. In other words, you're going to have a problem. Something in your life is not going to go well. Verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Let's read that last part one more time. He's saying, those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Now, if you're here and, and, and you've been going to this church a long time or you've been reading the Bible for a lot of years, we're going to come back to that statement because it might make you feel a little bit uneasy. But I think for many people who have some sense of morality or some sense of God in their life, that's how they live their lives. Maybe that's you this morning. You say, I feel like if I obey what God says to do, if I obey right and wrong just enough, then I might be declared righteous. Let me give you an example of how that might feel in your life. Does anybody here, would anybody here say, you know what, I, I watch figure skating when it's on in the Olympics. I'm not proud of it, but I do. I will admit that. I'm man enough. I grew up with two sisters. They outruled me. My vote only counted for one. So every time the Olympics were on in, in the 1980s, you're watching Christy Yamaguchi skate around. Here's what you know if you've ever watched Olympic figure skating. NBC will do this lead-up video for the next competitor. And they tell the story. They tell how this person has got up at five in the morning and how they've lifted weights and how they've had this dream since they were like three years old. And all of the hard work that they have put in over many, 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 many years and all the effort that are leading up to this next moment when they're going to skate and perform at the Olympics. And then when the video is over, you see the person skate out to center ice. Maybe they look nervous, maybe they look confident, and then the music starts. And for a handful of minutes, they perform. They pour everything they have into that performance. And if you're like me, you're watching it, and you probably have no clue if they're doing well or not. I evaluate how well I do skating by how many times I fall down. So they don't fall down at all, that's probably pretty good. Thankfully, there's commentators that'll tell you, yeah, that was, that was an amazing triple, double, axle 
Pixel Lux, whatever. I don't even know. It's like, honestly, do you ever watch that? You think like, that's impossible. How can a human being do that? If I tried 1% of what they did, I would be going to the hospital. And the commentators tell you how it's going, but when you're watching it, you know this. The commentator's opinion is nice, but it doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. The skater's opinion doesn't matter. The coach's opinion doesn't matter because there's one opinion in the building that matters. And that's the opinion of the judges. And that skater knows that when that performance is over, those judges are going to turn over a scorecard and all of their efforts and all of the work and the time that they put in, minus the failures and the mistakes that they have made, will either be good enough or not when that judge turns over the scorecard. And what Romans chapter 2, verse 13, is saying when Paul writes that those who obey the law will be declared righteous, is that some of us live our lives spiritually like a figure skater. And what I mean is some of us live our lives knowing that there's things that we can include in our performance that we believe will earn us points with the judge. Things like being here on Sunday in July when it's beautiful outside. God's got to be happy about that, right? Maybe you signed up to work in the nursery. I don't know if God gives bonus points for that, but I sure would. That's hard. Or maybe when the offering plate goes by, you say, okay, I'm going to put some money in. God, are you watching? We do things in our lives like remaining faithful to our spouse or being honest because we want to impress the judge to get a better score. We want to obey that law. And then we also want to limit the mistakes. You might even call that sin because we know that that hurts our score. And we live our lives like one day that judge is going to flip over the scorecard and it's not a figure skating judge, but it's God himself and he's going to say, you have either been good enough or not. And we will either enjoy the benefits of being acceptable to God or we will miss out. And so when Paul writes, those who obey the law will be declared righteous, you think, that's how I've lived my life. I have tried to make myself righteous. And if that's you this morning, I just want to ask a couple questions to kind of just try to get us thinking about this approach. There's a couple challenges, I think, when you really think about it. And the first challenge is this. If you approach it as though you have to make yourself righteous, that if righteousness is going to be that it's up to me and it's up to you, the first question is, how do you really know how good you need to be? How good do I need to be to be acceptable to God? How does that work? Like, is it throwing a few bucks in the offering plate once in a while or maybe helping an elderly person when I see them? Is that God's definition of good? And what happens when I mess up? Like, how realistic is God? Like, does God have a no swearing at all policy? Or is God a little bit more realistic? And maybe he's like, hey, you can have like a three-week allowance. Like, that's okay. Just don't exceed that. You'll be okay. How good does my grade and goodness need to be? Do I have to get an A to be acceptable to God? Or will a D earn me a degree? How good do I have to be? Here's the second challenge with that. Not only do I think we don't really know if that's our approach to pleasing God, how good we need to be, I don't think we really know how we're doing it being good. 
What's the answer to the question, how well am I doing at being good? God doesn't give you an annual eval and sit you down and say, look, this was a pretty good year. Um, you've done a lot better at being patient. When that person cut you off in traffic last week on the way to Pittsburgh, you, you kept all fingers wrapped around that steering wheel. You did not use any single finger to uh, thank the person beside you for giving you input on your driving. But you're still being a selfish jerk. Like, really? You knew your neighbor was sick. You came home. You drove right past them. Didn't say hi because you were in a hurry not to miss the episode of The Bachelor. Like, you've got to be less selfish if you really want to be good. We don't get the answers to those questions, do we? At least not when we approach it as though it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. The Bible, however, though, does give us an answer in Romans chapter 3, skipping ahead a few verses. Do you really want to know how well we are doing at being good? Romans 3 tells us this in verses 10 and 12. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's almost like Paul knew when he was quoting this passage out of the Old Testament, he's like, when we say there's no one good, surely someone pops in your head. Maybe it's your grandma, your fifth grade teacher, you know, your best friend, somebody. And he's like, nope, not even that person, not even one. No one is good. In fact, he doubles down on his argument in verse 20. He says, look, look, if you're going to be, obey, if you're going to be righteous by obeying the law and no one is righteous, then the logical conclusion is, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Paul is saying this. If it's going to be and it's up to me, then I have a problem because I cannot do it on my own. If it's going to be and it's up to you to be righteous, to be pleasing to God, then you have a problem because you can't do it on your own. Now, maybe you're sitting there, you're saying, okay, wait a second, this is getting a little bit confusing. What, why would Paul say in Romans chapter 2, with that big verse you just put on the screen, that if, we're, if we obey the law, we could be righteous, and then in a couple pages later, he's saying, wait a second, you can't be righteous by obeying the law. What's he trying to do? Let, let me explain it with an analogy. In, in the Flores household, uh, we have a no pets allowed policy in our house. I know uh, there are some who think it's an oppressive regime, uh, but you don't live there, so don't worry about it. My kids do live there, though, and they would agree with you. They think we should be allowed to have pets. Their vote doesn't count. So my son, who's seven, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I can't remember, informed my wife and I that he was ready to move out of the house because he doesn't want, even want like a goldfish. We're going we're gonna to jump straight to horses. And, and so he would like to have horses. And so he needs to have his own place to do that. Because we've said you can have pets when you have your own place. So he's like, we're just going to go do that. So my son comes to me and says, I'm ready to move out of the house. I want to get, get my own place. Now, there's an obvious answer to that. But my wife and I thought to have, we'd have a little bit of fun with it. And we said, sure. Absolutely. That'd be great. You know, it'd be great to have Can we ride them when we come visit you in your house that you have to buy with your own money? because we're not giving you any of ours to buy that. And so we had this conversation about, you can get your own place when you have enough money to do it, which led to a trip upstairs to the piggy bank. Some calculations, comes back downstairs, and what do you think we learned? We can afford internet for about a month, maybe like 27 days. But we cannot afford a house to put that internet in. 
And so the lesson my wife and I were trying to teach my son was this. Bump up against the reality of, of what you're trying to do. We didn't say, no, you can't move out of the house. We just said, you have to do it on your own. And he realized that at seven years old, you can't do it on your own. Paul was saying this. He said, here's the reality. If you want to be acceptable to God, you have to be perfect. And then he's saying, the reality is you can't do that on your own. The reality is, if it's going to be, it cannot be up to me. If it's going to be, it cannot be up to you. In fact, that's why he says in the rest of verse 20, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Through the law we become conscious of our sin. He's saying the law or, or knowing what is right and wrong in our lives, God doesn't give us that so that we can know how to be good. He gives us it so we can know how far from good we really are. Which brings us to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. He said, there's a different way. If it's going to be, there has to be a different way. But now, apart from you and I being good enough, there's a righteousness that has been made known. What is righteousness? What is it? If you've ever read much of the Bible, this word comes up all the time. What is righteousness? Well, if you believe in a God who's created the universe and kind of oversees it, then at some point you begin to wonder, okay, where do I stand with you? Like, are we good or not? Righteousness is having a right standing or a right relationship with our God. Righteousness in one sense is a legal word. It means that we have legally made it up to God for anything that we've done wrong against him. We've made it up to him. It's a legal word. So think about this. If you go home today and you're pretty excited about lunch and you get going a little bit too fast down Mercer Road, you might get to meet one of our friendly local police officers and he will give you a little ticket. And that ticket will require you to pay a fine. And in order to be right again with the state of Pennsylvania, you have to make it up by paying a fine. And to be righteous with God when we have broken his law, we have to make it up to him by making a payment. But righteousness isn't just a legal word, it's also a relational word. To be righteous, we have to relationally make up with God. We have to realize that there's been a break in our relationship. What we have done wrong against God has separated us in that relationship, and now we need to make up. To be righteous, we need to make up with God, and we need to make it up to God. But the problem is because of sin in our lives, because as Romans chapter 3 says, we are not good. We can't do that on our own. We need something apart from the law. We need a righteousness apart from the law, apart from our own efforts. We need one who is acceptable to God. We need one who has a right relationship with God to do it for us. And that takes us to Romans chapter 3, verse 22. This righteousness, this right relationship that Paul is talking about is given through faith 
in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He says, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying for every single person in this room, when God flips over that scorecard, if he's scoring you based on how well you do right and wrong in your life, your score will not pass. You will fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus had what we do not have, and that is a right relationship with God. Jesus can give us what we cannot gain for ourselves, and that is a righteousness before God. And that is why Jesus is the only one who can say, if it is going to be, it is up to me. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying to you today, if you want a right relationship with God, if that is going to be in your life, then you need to stop trying to gain it on your own because it can only be up to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have what you need. I have what you want, that peace, that security, that hope in your life. And I will give it to you. And so God, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to make an atonement for us. What is atonement? It's a big word, but it's incredibly important for us today. It has two meanings, really, that matter most for us today. First, the meaning of atonement is a reparation for offense or injury. In other words, it's a payment that makes up for something. Jesus made the payment for our sins for us. We owed God the most valuable thing that we have, and that's our lives because of the sin that we have in our lives. Jesus made that payment for us on the cross. Jesus, through his atonement, made, up, made it up to God for us. But atonement isn't just a payment. There's another meaning of atonement that's absolutely critical for us to grasp. Atonement also means reconciliation between God and humankind. Here's, here's why this is important. Because you have probably heard this before, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And you have probably heard before that Jesus paid to God what you could not pay for yourself. But do you realize that Jesus died for so much more than just making a payment for your sin? He didn't just want to bring you back to a zero balance with God and you're good. Because sometimes what happens is we look at God and we say, okay, I know I'm paid up to you, but I, we feel like God's still mad at us. We feel like he's angry with us, like he doesn't like us, like we blew it. And Jesus had to come bail us out, and now God's still holding it over on us because of our sin. Atonement means that Jesus Christ didn't just die to pay for us, he died to restore the relationship that we had with God. Let me give you a quick example. 
I want to put a person on the screen this morning so you can grasp what God wants in his walk with your walk with him. If we can put the screen, this man's name is Akarat Wong Suk Chan. Why does he matter? He is a father of one of the boys who was trapped in a cave for Thailand for almost three weeks. For 10 days, he didn't know where his son was. They just knew they were in caves. For seven more days, they knew that there was a narrow possibility, by a miracle only, that these boys would be rescued. For all that time, he didn't know if he was ever going to see his son again alive or not. And then a miracle happened. Those boys were rescued. And now for a week, they've been in a hospital in quarantine, and they can't hug their parents. And so when CNN interviewed that man, they said, what are you feeling? He said, I just want to hug my son. I just want to hug my son. And that's how God looks towards you. When Jesus Christ rescues one of God's sons or daughters, God isn't mad. He says, I just want to hug my son. I just want to hug you, my daughter. God wants that restoration of relationship with you. He's excited and he's happy when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to satisfy God's justice. He made it up to God for us, but he also came to satisfy God's love. He made up with God for us. Let me show you a quick video as we close that kind of pulls all this together. A man fell in a hole. He fell in a hole and he couldn't get out. A traveler passed by. He told the man to meditate, to purify his mind, and when he reached Nirvana, all suffering would cease. The man did as he was told, but he remained in the hole. Another man appeared. He explained that the hole didn't exist, and neither, in fact, did the man. It was all an illusion. The man who did not exist was still stuck in the hole that was not there. Another visitor arrived. He instructed the man to perform good deeds to improve his karma, and though he would still die in the hole, he might be reincarnated as something magnificent. Another man looked down from above. He taught the man to pray five times a day facing east and to follow five important tenets. If he was faithful, one day, perhaps, the divine would set him free. The man prayed as best he could, but he was losing strength, and in the hole he remained. was something different about him. He called down to the man in the hole and asked him if he wanted to be free. 
This man lowered himself into the earth, into the pit. He took hold of the man and dragged him into the light. And the man in the hole, who could not get himself out, was saved. The thing I love about that video is that Jesus doesn't just lower a rope down into the hole and say, if you're good enough to climb out on your own, you can be free. Comes down in the hole with us, puts us on his back, and carries us out. Climbing on Jesus' back is what faith is. That's what Romans chapter 3, is 20, 25 is talking about. When it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. Faith is letting go of the rope and all of our efforts to climb out on our own. Faith is saying to Jesus that I can't do this, but you have done it for me, and I am going to trust in you. Faith is giving up your efforts to be good enough and realizing that Jesus Christ has done for you what you can't do for yourself and allowing him to carry you out of that hole. Jesus says, if it's going to be, it's up to me. If it's going to be, it's up to Jesus Christ. Have you left it up to Jesus Christ in your life? I want to ask everyone just to bow your heads. As we close, we're going to just talk to God. I'm going to close my eyes as well. I'm not going to be looking around. This is just a moment between you and God. Maybe you would say today, I'm in that hole and I, I've been trying to just get out of that hole on my own. I've been trying to be good enough and I just feel like I know that it's not going well. I can't do it on my own. Will you let go of the rope? Maybe you've, maybe you've let go of the rope and you've been sitting in the bottom of that hole and you, and you say, I'm about to give up. Like, this just isn't working. I am not enough. The good news is Jesus knows and he's there with you. So today, if you're sitting here and, and, and you would say, I need Jesus to take me out of that hole, would you just raise your hand up toward God as an act to say, Jesus, I want to place my faith in you. Lift me out of that hole. I can't do it on my own. I know that I'm a sinner but I'm placing my faith in what Jesus Christ has done. I'm leaving it up to him. And I'm gonna to choose to follow him with my life. If that's you, just put your hand up to God. Nobody is looking around. This is between you and God right now. Jesus, I'm placing my faith in you. Carry me out of that hole. You can put your hands down. Father in heaven, we come before you. We thank you that in Romans chapter 21, verse chapter 321, there's but now. But now Jesus has come so that we can have a right relationship with you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. God, please use us, not just to keep this to ourselves, but as we leave this place today, to show the love of Jesus Christ to everyone we meet. In Jesus' name I pray, 
Amen. Couple quick things before you take off. Next week, we'll be back for week three of Selfless Living in a Selfie World. Pastor Bob will be sharing with us. Uh, you don't want to miss it. If you were here today and we were praying, you raised your hand. I just want to say, I'll be up front after the service is over. I'd love to pray with you about what God is doing in your life. Some of our pastors and our elders of our church will also be up front. We'd love to pray with you just to talk about what's God doing in your life. If you would like to talk to one of us, we will be here. Please come forward afterwards. I just want to wish you a, a wonderful Sunday. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.